you for this and to hear your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks. You can have a seat. Oh, man. Hey, a few more have hit number three. All right. Good to see you guys back there. Number two. and I don't... Yeah. Theater number two and theater number three. Glad to have you with us. And, and uh, we'll hope that you can hear everything all right and everything's going good. Uh, good news, Joe. I got a look. You got years before you have to worry about anything going on in the back there. Man, it's nice and thick there. Yeah, no problem at all. I'll keep you up to date. <laughs> in the year 1900, a German chocolate company decided to, as part of a promotion to present to, to promote the new century and, of course, their product, they decided to release a series of postcards, and on it they were going to depict what they thought life would be like in the year 2000, 100 years in advance. So they released a series of these one of them showed an x-ray machine, but an x-ray machine for buildings so that police departments could detect crime going on inside the buildings as they were driving down the street or, or walking down the street. Uh, there was another one that depicted indoor cities so that we wouldn't have to worry about tornadoes and hurricanes anymore. Everybody would be in this big biodome or something, wouldn't have to worry about that. There was one that talked about easy excursions to the North Pole, like you would take your family to Disney World, hey kids, let's go to the North Pole this weekend. And uh, there was another one that was a machine for creating nice weather. It's not so easy to predict the future uh, that I know of. None of those things uh, came true by the year 2000, along with hovercrafts and flying cars and all those kinds of things. Uh, it's not easy to predict what's going to happen in the future. Uh, software companies employ people who are called futurists. I'm told that it takes 10 to 15 years to develop a new software chip. And so they employ these people, futurists, and their job is to predict what life is going to be like 10 to 15 years down the road so that the company can develop technology that will be appropriate once we get to that time in history. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I turn on my phone and look at my weather app, they can't even predict what's happening the next day for weather. So I don't know how successful that process is, but that's what they do. Why do they do that? Because life is uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next, from one week to the next, one month, that uncertainty leads to anxiety and worry. Much of what we worry about never happens. Much of what we worry about we cannot control. And so what happens is our present is made miserable trying to prevent future misery that most of the time we can't do anything about. 1 John, which is where we are this morning, was written to give us stability in uncertain times. We're making our way through the Bible. We started in Genesis a year and a half ago. Now we've made it all the way to 1 John. We're almost to the end of the New Testament. And 1 John was written by the Apostle John. James and John were brothers. Their father's name was Zebedee. They were fishermen. And they were two of the first ones that Jesus called to be his disciples. He called Andrew. Andrew went and got Peter. 
and then he called James and John. And that's the John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. John, though he was one of the first disciples that Jesus called, was the last surviving disciple. I don't know if you know this or not, but all of the disciples were martyred. They all gave their lives because of their faith and because of their preaching of God's word, except for the Apostle John. Historians tell us that John lived to be probably almost 100 years old. And he was probably 85 or 90 when he wrote the book of 1 John. He writes it because there were all kinds of false teachers that were starting to prey on the church. The Holy Spirit had come in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit had come. Peter preached that famous message. 3,000 people got saved. And the church began to be born. And the church spread. The disciples took the gospel all over the world that was known at that time. And the church spread. And it grew. And all of these churches sprung up all over the place. But as these churches grew, so too did the false teaching. People who would come along and would take the gospel and they would take parts of it and they would tweak it in order to deceive people and draw them away. Satan would would encourage these ones to go out and infiltrate these churches and try to distract people from the truth of God's word. And that's why John wrote the book of 1 John. The word know and knowledge is used 13 times in this little book, just five chapters, and seven times in chapter 5 that we're going to look at here this morning. Now, for those of you that were here last week when Tim was talking about 2 Peter, he talked about the word knowledge. And that's what I want you to focus on this morning when we talk about the things that we can know. I want you to know that we're not talking, like Tim said last week, we are not talking about just an intellectual knowledge. We're not talking about just learning and filling our heads with facts. But this knowledge, rather than being simply intellectual, is experiential. It's relational. This kind of knowledge changes the way that you live. And that's what we're going to see here. John knew Jesus very well. If you were to read the Gospel of John, and you're reading along in there, sometimes you would see John refer to the disciple whom Jesus loved or the one whom Jesus loved, John was referring to himself. Jesus had 12 disciples, and then he had three of the disciples that were kind of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So for three years, John was with Jesus probably almost every day. He walked with him, he talked with him, he listened to him, and he knew him by experience, by building that relationship with him. And that's what John wants us to have. He wants us to have that kind of knowledge of Jesus Christ and relationship with him. In a world of uncertainty, there is much we can know. And I want you to think about this this morning, that a true disciple treasures the certainties of God's word and lives in light of them. So we're going to read nine verses from 1 John chapter 5, if you have your Bible with you this morning. Turn with me to 1 John 5. Toward the end of the chapter, we're going to start reading in verse number 13. And we're going to find eight things that we can know. So we're going to have to move here to do eight things. We're going to have to move as well because I can see that you're all sinking deeply into those chairs. And I know theater two and theater three, you think I can't see you, but I can. So 
you know, twitch or move something once in a while. I can't see your faces, so I won't identify you and call you out. But I will say, you know, hey, the third guy on the second row from the left, you know, stop drifting off. So, all right, 1 John chapter 5, start reading verse number 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So here's the first thing. We can know that we have eternal life. Now, does anybody know what John 3.16 says? Anybody know John 3? Not one person knows John 3.16. I find that hard to believe. I don't know where Tim is sitting, but everything that we feared has come true. These, these chairs are way too comfortable. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. See, we can know that we have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says, Everyone who calls on him will be saved. I can't tell you how many people I talk to all of the time, people that I know are walking with the Lord, people that I know have trusted Christ and will be having a conversation about what's going on in their lives or or human mortality, or they'll have just lost someone that they love, and they'll say, boy, I, I hope I get to heaven. I hope when that day comes that God will take me. My friends, we can know that we have eternal life. This does not have to be a question. In John chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus assures us that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are in His hand, and no one can take us out. And then he says, my father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one can take them out of his hand. I want you to understand this morning, folks, that our security, the assurance of our salvation does not depend on our consistency or our goodness or our supposed perfection if we ever thought that we could get there. It depends on the faithfulness and the power of God. He is our security. We can know that we have eternal life. Know this, John says. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So number one, we know we have eternal life. Here's number two, we know that God hears us when we pray. Now, there are two very important things we have to understand about this. When we talk about the fact that we know that God hears us when we pray, here's the first one, and that is that God and God alone is the recipient of our prayers. 
God is the only one that we pray to. He is the only one that the Word of God says that we should pray to. Why am I saying that? Well, I'm saying that because there are some systems of faith that say we should pray to angels or we should pray to saints or we should pray to Mary or we should pray to a whole host of people. But God's Word only ever tells us that we should pray to God Himself. God is the recipient of our prayers. And we should celebrate this direct access to Him. We should act on it. We should be going to God on a daily basis, asking God to do the things that only He can do. I want you to notice what John says there. He says, this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that He hears us when we pray. Now, this confidence is not, it's not an arrogance. It's not a boastfulness like, well, I can just waltz in and pray to God anytime I want. I can just walk right into the throne room and God has to listen to me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that we have the freedom to come to God at any time. No matter what point it is in the day, I don't ever want to hear you say, God, I hope I'm not bothering you, but da-da-da-da-da. God, I know you got a lot going on. I know you're busy. I know you got 7 billion people to worry about, but it's me again. You don't have to do that because we are promised that God hears us when we pray. Now, I want you to notice that there is one caveat, and that is that he hears us when we pray according to his will. According to his will. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're not talking about asking God for an A on an exam that you didn't study for. It means we're not talking about asking God to get some revenge on somebody that you don't like. We're not talking about asking God for an extra 10K in your checking account. What it does mean is that we are praying according to the desires of God. What do we know that God wants? What do we know that He wants to see happen in my life and in this world? Those are the things that we should be praying for. Now, how in the world are we going to know what those things are? Well, we need to know who God is. We need to know what His Word has to say. That's why we do this every Sunday. That's why we encourage you to be a part of a small group where you study the Bible. That's why we have classes during the week and we encourage you to attend them so that you can know who God is. When you know who God is, you know what God wants. What does God want? God wants to see people saved. That is His desire. When you pray and ask that God would be at work in the hearts of people in your family that live on your road, that you go to school with, that you work with, that you hang out with and care about, God hears that prayer. Because that is the desire of God's heart. God hears us when we pray about our own spiritual growth and maturity. He hears you when you ask Him to help you to turn away from the old way of living and learn to live in a way that honors Him. He hears you when you pray for the strengthening of families, for the strengthening of marriages. He hears you when you pray for things that lead to obedience to His Word 
and his glory in this world. God hears those prayers. Let's look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. So we know we have eternal life. We know God hears us when we pray according to his will. And here's number three. We know that God answers our prayers. The prayers that God hears, he answers. Now, we are not promised that they are always answered in the way that we want them to be answered. Right? We don't have that promise. God doesn't say, whatever you pray for that I hear, I will answer just the way you want it answered. He says, when you pray according to my will, I will hear that prayer and I will answer it. In the book of James, we are told to pray in faith, believing that God's answer will be given according to his purposes for our lives. You see, part of trusting God is trusting that he knows what is best for us. Okay? Nod your head if you understand that, at least on some level. Now, is that not something that we have to continue to learn as we walk with God? Yes, it is. We have to trust that God knows what is best for us. Solomon, remember Solomon from the Old Testament? Solomon prayed for wisdom. What did God say? God said yes and gave him wisdom. Paul prayed for relief from his physical ailments. What did God say? God said no. Why did he say no? Because he knew that it was best for Paul that he deal with these infirmities, that he deal with these frailties, and learn to trust God even more for the grace that he needed to live his life. Melody and I several years ago prayed that God would lead us from where we were to the right church where he would use us. And God said, yes, he brought us here. Melody and I also prayed that God would give us three or four children in our family. God said no. Why did he say no? I don't know all the answers to that question other than that God determined in his will and in his love for us that it was best for us to answer that prayer no. Our prayers do not determine God's decisions. But they do develop our relationship with Him and our trust that He has our best in mind. You see, as we grow closer and as we learn that He hears us when we pray according to His will and we learn that He answers those prayers, then we come to understand that either what we ask for has been granted or what we have asked for is not what's best for us. Look at verse 16. Now hang on as I read verses 16 and 17, because this is kind of like a riddle, and we'll get to the end of it, to the bottom of it. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death... There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so we're okay if I skip over these ones and just go to the next one. Everybody got that right? 
I don't need to explain it. Theater number three. A lot of uh, good-looking folks out there. You guys got it? We don't need to d discuss that one. These are some of the verses that we come to when we're reading passages of Scripture, and we go right over them. We say, okay, I have no idea what that means. I'm just going to go to the next one. Well, we're going to stop right here and understand what it is that God is saying. Here's the fourth thing we can know. We know that there is one sin that is unforgivable. Okay? We know that there is one sin that is unforgivable. This doesn't seem like it fits in this passage, but I promise you that it does. First of all, John gives us an example of a prayer that God will answer right in the beginning of that verse 16. He tells us that he will answer our prayers for a brother or a sister who has fallen into sin. Okay? He says, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. I will hear, God says, the prayer for a brother or sister who is sinning. Now, we should notice as we think about this, much of our prayer life should be about other people, by the way. That's why sometimes we get so caught up in praying for things uh, that we shouldn't or not praying according to God's will because we're selfish about our prayer sometimes. We should be praying about other people. That should be a huge part of our prayer life. And when a fellow Christ follower sins, we ought to feel compassion and not pride. That's why we walk this life together. That's why this is so important. That's why what happened before we came in here with all of you standing out in the foyer, fellowshipping and talking and, and catching up and what we'll do afterwards, that's why it's so important. Because we need to know each other and we need to walk through life together. And when a brother or sister is in sin, is sinning, we should be compassionate, and we should be praying for them, and that's what John is talking about. Now, I want to clarify something that John says here. We need to understand that all sin leads to spiritual death. We know that. The Bible is very clear. All sin leads to spiritual death. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all sin leads to spiritual death. But for those of us who have trusted Christ, we can confess our sin and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. John says that in 1 John 1.9. What does that mean? That means if you are a Christ follower and you sin, that sin does not lead to your spiritual death, right? Nod your head if you're following me so far. If not, I need to back up and start again. Okay, so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, His blood has sealed you. And what can we know? What's the first thing we know? We know that we have eternal life, right? Okay, so when, when John says he sins, your brother sins a sin that does not lead to death, what he is talking about is the fact that as a Christ follower, that sin does not lead to your brother's spiritual death. I was working with Joe the other day. We were up on a, well, he was up on a roof. I got to stand down below and cut things and pass them up to him. And I'm sure that after Joe was done, he went home, he did up a bill for the client, he sent it off. 
Now, if I learned that Joe was padding the bill and adding hours and being dishonest in his billing, and I found out about that, I could go to him. I could say, Joe, this isn't the right thing to do. Uh, and I could pray for him and say, God, help Joe to understand this is not the right thing to do. But Joe is not going to lose his salvation. He's a Christ follower. God has saved him. But if he asks for forgiveness, by the way, Joe doesn't do that. He's very reliable. JCFHandyman.com, okay, if you need some help. He's a great guy, honest as the day is long, I promise. But Joe's not going to lose his salvation. Christ is going to cleanse him for his sin. That's what Paul's talk, or John is talking about here. This sin does not lead to death. Then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. Wait a second. I thought Christ died to forgive our sin. I thought Christ died so that we could be saved. What do you mean? That, what, tell me what it is because I don't want to do it. If there's one that can't be forgiven, what is it? What sin, John even says here, this sin cannot be prayed for. That sin is the denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The only sin that is unforgivable is the rejection of the gospel. Jesus talks about that in the book of Matthew when he calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Every sin can be forgiven except rejecting Jesus Christ. That sin cannot be forgiven. And I want to encourage you this morning, my friends, to pray for those that are lost in your life. Pray for the lost in our state, in this country, around the world. Pray for them every moment that you possibly can. But at that moment when they fully and finally reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can pray for them no more. There is a sin that leads to death, and it's the rejection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, has anybody ever read the Bible and said, there are just too many pronouns in here. I need a lot more proper names. I need to know who's being talked about. Him and he and all those things, and it's hard to keep track of. This is another one of those verses. Here's number five, though. We know that Jesus protects us from Satan. We know that God protects us from Satan. For those of us who are truly saved, sin is no longer the primary practice of our lives. It does not characterize us. We do sin, but it's not the way that we live. Let's look at this phrase, he who is born of God protects him. The best way for us to understand what John is talking about here is that he is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is he who was born of God. Why do I think that? Well, in the Gospel of John, when John is writing in chapter 1 and verse 14, he says that Jesus was born of God. What did we just quote a few minutes ago in John 3.16? We said that Jesus was what? The Son of God. Matthew chapter 1 tells us of the miracle of the virgin birth. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit of God did a miracle in Mary's body so that Jesus could be born in his physical body. 
He, that is Jesus, who is God, protects us. He who was born of God protects us. He watches over us, those of us who have trusted in him. We need to know that. We need to remember it. We need to treasure it because we live in enemy territory. If you didn't know that, I hope you're waking up to that reality now in these last few months. We live in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, increasingly hostile to the truth of God's word. After Christmas and the new year, we're going to start going through the book of Philippians, and we're going to call that series Citizens of Heaven. Paul says that in Philippians 3.20. We are citizens of heaven. We're, just, we're strangers here. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. This is temporary. We are citizens of heaven. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We know that God protects us from Satan. And that ties directly into the sixth thing we know, if you're keeping track. Verse 19 of 1 John 5. We know that we are from God, John says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's the sixth thing we know. We know that we belong to God, but that there are two sides to this war. I don't preach a lot about Satan. If you've been coming here for 17 years, you've probably only heard me preach about it a couple of times, maybe. I don't preach about him a lot. I don't like to give him a lot of air time, but Satan is real. And this battle is real that we are in the middle of. Martin Luther said 500 years ago, the world is the realm of wrongdoing and Satan is Lord over it. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that he is the one who has influence over this world right now. He will harass us, he will trouble us, he will tempt us, but he will never take us who belong to Christ. We belong to God. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, what are we going to do when difficulty comes, when trouble comes, when illness, all of these things come against us? Will we be able to be separated from the love of God? He says, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He goes on to say that we are more than conquerors through the one who loves us. We belong to God, but we are in a battle And it's a battle that will not be won by us. Jesus Christ himself will win this battle against Satan and all of the evil in this world. And we must know that. And we must be convinced of it. That we belong to him in the middle of this battle. Verse 20. And we know that God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true and eternal life. Number seven, we can know that we can, or we know that we can truly know God. God doesn't hide Himself from us. He doesn't want to be mysterious to us. He reveals Himself when we ask, ask Him and we seek Him. 
There is no vagueness about God. There is no inconsistency about Him. And this understanding is a gift that He has given us. We can know that He is the true God. And that's why we are constantly asking you, constantly imploring you to be in your Bible, to read it for yourself, to ask questions, to be part of a group, to come to church, to learn and grow. Because God has revealed Himself to us. And we can know that He is truly God. Last verse, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This verse seems like it's tacked on. This is the end of the book. That's it. That's how John closes. And it seems like it's tacked on there and it doesn't really fit, but it does because if verse 20 is true and Jesus is the true God, then it's imperative that we worship Him alone. As I was reading this past week and getting ready to speak to you this morning, I found uh, this. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading said this. I appreciated it. I don't know if you will, but he said, Be sure that you do not luxuriate in the bubble bath of Christian assurance. Be sure that you do not luxuriate in the bubble bath of Christian assurance. What does that mean? It means, yes, we can know that we're saved. Yes, we can know that God hears and answers our prayers. Yes, we can know that He protects us. But we still have a responsibility to stay clear of the things that would distract us from total, humble devotion to Jesus Christ. There are so many things out there that would grab our attention. Let me ask you this morning. What distracts you from total devotion to Jesus Christ? Is it your job? Is it your family, your responsibilities, your financial situation, your hobbies? What is it? What would distract you from total devotion to Christ? If we don't know and study and understand and remember what is true about Jesus Christ and salvation, we will seek other forms of stability. We will look for other things to be certain in this world of uncertainty if we don't know and understand who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us. That's my challenge to you this morning, folks. Treasure the certainties of 1 John 5 and live in light of them. You have a choice. Will you worship Jesus as the one true God? Or will you keep chasing lifeless idols? Don't you want to know that God will hear your prayers? Don't you want to know that you belong to God? Don't you want to know that you have eternal life to be assured of those things? How can you possibly know those things? You know them by knowing Jesus and by consuming the truth of God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says this in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why this is so important. You know, when we're not together in the same room or in Theater 2 or Theater 3, you people matter too. When we're not together like this face to face, then our communication is only one way. God intended for us to be together. That's why he says not neglecting the gathering of some together like, like some do, but encouraging each other. I can't encourage you. You can't encourage me unless we're together. And he closes this by saying, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This becomes increasingly important the closer we get to the day when Christ returns. Will you stand up with us? We're going to close in a moment. I need to give you time because it's hard to get out of those seats. Stand up and sing with us, my friends, and remember what we know from God's Word that gives us hope as we sing this together. together today. We pray that the truth of your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would learn and grow. Thank you for all that have come here today. We ask your blessing on them. Lord, you know through the uncertainties of our lives, you know what is going to happen tomorrow, next week. We ask you would just give us the grace that we need to honor you through all that comes our way. Thank you for this day. We ask your blessing on each one that is gathered. In Christ's name. Thanks, folks. Have a great week.